morning and welcome to Rising. We have a fantastic show for you today. It tells me to say great, but I'm feeling fantastic. Uh, Brianna, what do we have? Well, Dr. Amesh Adalja will join to answer all our questions about the spreading monkeypox virus, especially whether the panic is truly justified. Plus, our rising panel will weigh in on what may be the final nail in the coffin of Donald Trump and Mike Pence's alliance. But first, entering the misinformation discourse is none other than Dr. Anthony Fauci. He spoke out against the spread of falsehoods online while delivering Princeton University's commencement address yesterday. Fauci proselytized that if something doesn't change soon, quote, then truth means nothing, integrity means nothing, and facts mean nothing. Being in Washington has allowed me to experience firsthand the intensity of the divisiveness in our nation. What troubles me is that differences of opinion or ideology have, in certain situations, been reflected by egregious distortions of reality. Sadly, elements of our society have grown increasingly inured to a cacophony of falsehoods and lies that often stand largely unchallenged, ominously leading to an insidious acceptance of what I call the normalization of untruths. We see this happen daily with falsehoods propagated through a range of information platforms by a spectrum of people, including, sad to say, certain elected officials in positions of power. Physician, heal thyself <laughs> about all the misinformation that has sprung from the wellspring of knowledge that is Dr. Anthony Fauci. Yeah, it's not that he's wrong. It's that he is completely lacking in any insight about the role that he has played in that, right? I think everyone is kind of in the same boat where it's frustrating that there is this bifurcation that's happened, these very different camps that believe very different things. I think everyone is struggling to figure out how to understand what is real, no matter what your ideological perspective. I think that diagnosis, doctor, is correct. But at the end of the day, I think, I don't want us to, to, to kind of participate in the bifurcation by not acknowledging that it is very difficult in the information age. And it is very difficult when there's so much partisanship that has affected people's translation of science. It is so difficult when there's so many political incentives that are driving different so-called like scientific decisions and decisions about whether or not to open up businesses or not, decisions about whether or not to distribute certain kind of masks or pay for certain kinds of vaccines and all of this, to find out what you should really do for your own personal safety. And I do find myself wishing there was some kind of good housekeeping keeping seal of approval that could vet information, but we see how that goes with as misinformations are. And I don't know what the solution is. It's like every man is an island all of a sudden. I also am increasingly troubled that misinformation, disinformation, malinformation, whatever you call it, seems now it, it is the framing that liberals, that Democrats have chosen. It, it is their way to understand what has happened over the last six, four years, however long it's been. And that framing is, I think, increasingly suspect. Like, the, the buy-in to it is tremendous. So much reporting, the whole like, disinformation reporting industry now, right? they wanted to create a czar about it. It is the way liberals seem to try to understand what's happening. Is There's rapid spread of disinformation manufactured by mm -hmm. hysterical right-wing people and propagated to the masses, making them you know, foolish and suspicious and crazy. But isn't it just entirely wrong? Like, are people more well, uh, m more misinformed today than ever before? Like, where is the... I, I want to see some science or some polling on that. Like, people have been misinformed about policy and politics yeah. and you know, basic questions of expertise I don't know forever. that it's, it's anything other than, and I think I was talking about this last week, the role that social media is playing and the fact that people have all had all kinds of opinions and takes throughout human history, right. but chiseling it into my little rock tablet and spreading it on Reddit have two different kind of valences right. and levels of effect. I also, while I completely agree that it's a weird framing that liberals have taken that like politicizes the idea of misinformation in a way that 
is out of step with the fact that it's always existed. It is the flip side of, I think, what conservatives do, which is the kind of conspiratorial, they're lying to us, right? Mm -hmm. One side says, you know, there are people who don't believe the authoritative facts coming down on the high, and the other side that says, I can't believe the authoritative facts or anything that comes from the government because it's Pizzagate or QAnon or, or yeah. these other kinds of less serious or less extreme kinds of um, untruths. And I don't know how to bridge that gap. I will also say that the vast majority of people, I think, are somewhere in the middle and not quite as suspicious and distrustful of things. I think the most people still open the New York Times or Washington Post or whatever your rack of choice is right. and trust it. But I do think that part of what the appetite is for shows like this with people with multiple opinions talking to each other is that no one knows what the truth is, so they might as well have two people with different ideas hash it out and get some sense of truthiness from the vibe between them and who just seems more credible on their face. It, it, it just seems like a bad way to understand what's happening. Say, It's not because, you know, speaking for the Democrats, it's not because the policies we're offering are not what the people want or we've you know, lost sense of who our voters are or we speak to them using a new cultural vocabulary that you know, elite college grad students came up with that everyone hates. It can't be any of these things the reason we're losing. We're losing because the people are being like hypnotized. Yes. By, by, you know, an old school guy with the pendulum or yeah. something. Yeah, well, and Russia was the biggest boogeyman right. in, in that regard. And I think it's really to the detriment of the Democratic Party to refuse to acknowledge and take any accountability for its own personal feelings over time. There is no reason it needs to be losing, but to the extent that it engages in any of the misinformation campaign, it's just to stir the pot and make it worse. And again, never reflect on all of the things it has gotten wrong. And it's, those people end up, those people, the, the people most obsessed with the kind of misinformation, most involved in the misinformation reporting industry end up sounding like conspiracy theorists themselves because they, that's how they, they're connecting all the dots. So this is why everything's happening because this tweet went viral, harassment campaigns, that's all there is. Right. It's like, no. Right. Right, right. Meanwhile, former Trump advisor Kellyanne Conway called out Dr. Fauci in her new memoir, accusing the White House science advisor of foregoing masks while in private. Conway allegedly wrote, quote, no mask was standard fare in the White House Situation Room, where Dr. Fauci was more likely to wear Dr. Fauci socks than a mask. Surprise, surprise, surprise. Now, I mean, consider the source. It's Kellyanne Conway. But it would not surprise me at all that he was demasking in private. Because so many people are like this. I think that so many people, you know, have non-scientific assessments of their own risk. And while I understand as a public health official the gap between what you are, you know, if you feel compelled to tell the public and what you practice in your own house might be bigger and might feel more problematic as a consequence, I don't think it's that unusual for people to not necessarily practice what you preach. What is so deeply frustrating is that there was so much moralizing around it from people who knew that they weren't doing those same kinds of behaviors in their own lives. And I also think that, that a lot of Liberals, my observation has been there's a comfort level in demasking when people think they're around other liberals because they think that they're safe, like COVID magically is not spreading among Because COVID liberals. only afflicts bad people, not good people. Right. And if, you're you a, see, if, you're a, if you're impure, <laughs> then you're vulnerable. Well, look, I think right. some of it That's is... That's how the, they talk about it. Some of it is the perception that, obviously, if you are engaging in risk-taking behavior, the likely that you are going to be getting COVID and spreading COVID is higher and that's reasonable. But there is, I think, that doesn't translate to you have no risk just because someone else is being safe. Lots of people get COVID, people who've been trying very hard and being very careful get COVID and moralizing to the degree where you think that you're safe just because somebody voted the same way that you did and unmasking in public or unmasking at fancy functions is gross. You're a good person, Brianna, which is why you haven't gotten it yet. <laughs> I'm not a good person, which is why I think I'm due for round two anytime now. I mean, I wasn't so. going to say it. <laughs> what about, are you, you going to be uh, remasking aggressively because of the monkeypox? No, not because of my, I, I haven't stopped masking in high-risk situations. So I still mask when I go into stores and, you know, ride in Ubers and go on public transportation and things like that. Um, and I've really enjoyed not getting any cold of any kind for about two years now after Must being be nice. a very, very set gal usually. So why not? Why stop? Well, we'll be talking more about monkeypox and the risks and as so forth uh, in just a minute. And uh, we're going to tell you what's on my radar, I believe, coming up next. Looking forward to it. Robbie, what's on your radar today? 
Okay, it's finally time to get into it. Johnny Depp's defamation trial against ex-wife Amber Heard has entered its sixth and final week, with closing arguments expected on Friday. Depp is seeking $50 million in damages in order to punish Heard for implying that he was a domestic abuser in a Washington Post op-ed. Heard contends that Depp was indeed abusive and has countersued for $100 million. Their conflict is messy, it's salacious, and the public can't seem to look away. But the fraud attempt by everyone involved, trial participants and onlookers, to condense a rocky relationship into a neat, uncomplicated story about one hero and one villain should give us pause about the wisdom of formally arbitrating such things. Anything, the Depp Heard trial, in my opinion, calls to mind sort of student hookup disputes that frequently occur on college campuses were previously adjudicated in accordance with ill-conceived federal guidance relating to Title IX, where obvious instances of unwise behavior on both sides were often ignored in favor of simplistic victim-perpetrator narratives. Such campus adjudication is expected to make a comeback presently. The Biden administration is planning to release new guidance any week now that will likely be a disaster. More on that in just a minute. But first, the Depp Heard trial has, in fact, captured the public's fascination. It's not surprising. The involved parties are famous movie stars with active careers, and other celebrities are lining up behind one or the other. Eva Green, a co-star with Depp in Dark Shadows, wrote on Instagram that there is no doubt Johnny will emerge with his good name and wonderful heart revealed to the world. Comedian Kathy Griffin, on the other hand, has shared articles that are supportive of Heard. The media is closely covering the proceedings. Many liberal and feminist commentators lament the widespread mockery of Heard on social media, while the pro-Dep camp, including those who think the Me Too movement has treated men unfairly, and also people who just happen to be fans of the actor, well, they feel vindicated. Heard and Depp began dating in 2009. They married in 2015 and divorced 15 months later. In December of 2018, Heard wrote an op-ed for the Washington Post in which she came out as a, quote, domestic abuse survivor. The article in question did not mention Depp by name, but Depp was perceived to be the abuser in question. During the trial, it was revealed that employees of the American Civil Liberties Union actually wrote the op-ed, and Heard had promised to give the organization $3.5 million from her divorce settlement. Odd. Depp filed suit, arguing that the article was defamatory, And in fact, Heard had abused him, not the other way around. Now, what has emerged at the trial is good evidence that both Depp and Heard have treated each other very badly. Witnesses have testified to Depp's overuse of alcohol and drugs and how they affected his behavior. Heard, for her part, was manipulative and cruel and has admitted to throwing pots and pans and even striking Depp. Conclusive evidence that Depp was the more abusive of the two has not yet emerged, however, and plenty of testimony suggests that Heard is telling exaggerations or outright falsehoods about the extent of her injuries due to alleged sexual and physical abuse. As the New Republic's Natalie Shore explained in a perceptive piece about the trial, quote, most significant eyewitnesses is her own sister, Whitney Henriquez, whose former colleague and roommate has claimed that Henriquez had apparently moved out of Depp and Heard's home because she was scared of her sister and contemporaneously confided that Henriquez saw Heard attack Depp, not the other way around. An account corroborated by Depp's bodyguard on duty, the extreme brutality of what Heard alleges, coupled with an utter lack of independent corroboration of anything, even approaching the extent of her story, and the fact that several of Depp's former partners have insisted he displayed no abusive behavior before Heard met him when he was in his 50s makes her account very hard to swallow. Resting the integrity of feminism on Amber Heard's word is an awfully shaky bet, end quote. That's from Natalie Shore of the New Republic. Now, given that Heard is demonstrably not a reliable narrator, Shore warns against drawing any broad, sweeping conclusions. This trial is just a referendum on the reputation of two rich and famous actors who treated each other jaw-droppingly terribly in the most dramatic fashion possible, Shore writes. So that's a solid retort to op-eds in the New York Times that have mourned the resulting death of Me Too or complained that the trial is really about the historical misogynistic desire to watch women suffer. Quote, this is a good old-fashioned public pillorying, writes Tom, Times contributing editor Jessica Bennett, Only memes have replaced the stones. Heard was undoubtedly wrong to try to turn her bad marriage into good PR for her personal brand as an aspiring Me Too feminist and ACLU mouthpiece. That doesn't mean that filing suit was the correct response. The defamation bar is extremely high and Depp could lose, even if he is broadly correct that Heard's abusive behavior is equal to or worse than his own. 
Now, if one were to try and make some actual useful broader observation, which I'm going to attempt to do here, it would probably start by recognizing that sexual encounters, relationships, and marriages are often difficult. People can abuse each other in a variety of ways. Trying to account for all the ways in which one embittered partner has harmed another in an attempt to assign abuser and abused status, that's an extremely fraught exercise. But this is, of course, the exact exercise undertaken at all publicly funded institutions of higher learning since the days of the Obama administration, under the auspices of compliance with Title IX, the federal law that mandates sex and gender equality in schools, something I've talked about and Emily Jashinsky has talked a lot about in our Raiders for this show. The Obama-era Education Department's Office for Civil Rights instructed universities to adjudicate sexual misconduct disputes in a manner granting extraordinary deference to whichever student filed the first complaint, often placing accusers in situations where they essentially had to prove their innocence against a presumption of guilt. The Trump administration reformed these policies such that accused students and faculty members enjoyed considerably more due process rights. Importantly, the Trump-era policies allowed for parties in a sexual misconduct dispute to settle the matter informally through mediation. The previous guidance had required institutions to conduct investigations, often involving a single employee with total authority over the procedure, even without the approval or participation of the so-called victim. Unfortunately, the Biden administration has given every indication that it will undo some or all of these changes. The department has said it will unveil new guidance in June. It's not clear how extensive the rollback will be. But with Catherine Lehman, Obama's czar of Title IX, back in her exact same position, there's little reason for optimism. Anyone who cringes at the extent to which two people can destroy each other's lives, I'm cringing, and reputations when given the opportunity to air their grievances in such a manner should be steadfastly against any return to form. That's my attempt to... to bring a Robbie-adjacent point into this kind of debate. I, I was only following the trial uh, here and there, and then I, I, I started really catching up on it um, more recently. And I don't see why people enjoy watching this. People are loving watching this. I, I can't, like, it's just so awkward for me to watch people who used to care about each other go at each other like this. But it seems so clear that there's just, like, it's a messy relationship, Mm-hmm. bad treatment of each other, mm-hmm. you know, the more uh, the, the more serious claims that Heard has suggested or implied could very well be true, but she hasn't really produced the kind of evidence, and, and she has, the, the witnesses who, you know, have testified to her own very manipulative and, and quasi-abusive behavior calls that, that into the question, but it's, just, it's a bad relationship. Yeah. And you, you shouldn't... At, at some level, you shouldn't adjudicate bad relationships because there's going to be a lot of wrongdoing here in both cases. Right. So, I mean, then it's worth asking why they are adjudicating this right now. It's yeah. because Johnny Depp brought this defamation claim based on some sentences in this op-ed that you referenced that make Johnny's case pretty hard because what she said, she didn't name Johnny Depp specifically. She said, I'm speaking out against domestic violence and making this broader argument about the perniciousness of domestic domestic violence in our society because I, too, have been the victim of domestic violence. And people read into that that she was talking about Johnny Depp, and then he brought this claim, which makes his burden of proof in this civil case. It's, it's pretty difficult for him because not only does he have to prove that it was about him and intentionally about him, but that it was um, a claim that was made with malice with the intent to harm him. And given that, you know, it seems from the testimony that's come out so far that they both were abusive to each other in various sorts of ways. The fact of Amber Heard also being a bad actor here doesn't help Johnny Depp in his defamation claim if he also was a bad actor. So part of what's so frustrating in all of this is that the appetite for this and the focus on Amber Heard's bad acts, which, you know, it's legitimate, they're bad acts, is in some ways, I think, indicative of people, for people, of an appetite for undermining Me Too. Since this case isn't actually about that, the case is about what Johnny Depp did, like legally, not morally, but legally it's about what Johnny Depp did. The fact that there's such an appetite for uh, Amber Heard's behavior and the viral hashtags of, you know, Me Too gone and all of this stuff, it suggests to people that the simmering resentments from that movement are still there. And people are capitalizing on this case as a way to push a broader political agenda. And, And that's unfortunate because this is this is a bad case to make for Me Too. And it's a bad case for people who are trying to make some broader 
claims about the non-existence of Me Too as a phenomenon. Well, I think I mostly agree with that. I, yes, the, the bar, to, the, the defamation bar is a very high one to clear for good reason. Especially for public figures. Uh, yeah, I don't, I don't know that he's going to even come close to clearing it. Uh, you're right, he wasn't specifically named. She said she was a domestic, she, she, that she had gone through domestic abuse. That's not actually very specific language even. Um, and it looks actually clear from airing the facts that there was some abusive behavior. Now, there was abusive behavior in both directions, but that sure. doesn't matter for the defamation claim. So, I, yeah, I, I absolutely agree with you on all that. The, you know, the reason that, but she tried to cash in on her. She wanted the victimhood status. She wanted a, I, you know, this is the culture, this is the Me Too moment, and I, I, I am a, I should be a figure of it because of what I went through. And that was not a wise choice on her part either. The ACLU really screwed up by getting themselves involved in this, in my opinion. Uh, it's very, that whole thing is very shady. And then, like, the promising of the money from the divorce. There's something uh, just not right about all of that, which is a kind of pre a different discussion. Actually, we've had this discussion previously on the mm -hmm. show. Um, so that is also, that is a proxy. I mean, he responded to that. Mm -hmm. I don't know that the, the lawsuit was really the right way necessarily to respond to it. And now we're in this situation where it's just you're watching two people go through every aspect of a really messy relationship. And it is all, and I would rather, I would rather it was not happening. Well, in some ways, this might be exactly, I mean, I, I don't know what's going on in Johnny Depp's head, but to the extent that he was hurt or frustrated or made angry by Amber Heard's op-ed, this is one way to have retribution, not because he actually might win this claim, but because now we know all these salacious details about the relationship that Amber Heard would prefer not to be made known. And people can make their own independent judgments about whether or not that's a justified reaction or whether the punishment fits the crime now that we're all t talking about Amber Heard pooping in a bed or whatever the, the next narrative event is. But it certainly doesn't do much for public discourse. And I, for one, will be happy when this private issue becomes a private issue once again. Some, some private issues should remain private issues. <laughs> I agree. Uh, well, HBO's Bill Maher made the rounds on social media for his monologue on trans kids. We'll discuss that next. Bill Maher is facing backlash online for a segment he did on the growing rate of self-identifying LGBTQ people in the country, including children who identify as trans. Let's watch. Broken down over time, the LGBT population of America seems to be roughly doubling every generation. According to a recent Gallup poll, less than 1% of Americans born before 1946, that's Joe Biden's generation, identify that way. 2.6% of boomers do, 4.2% of Gen X, 10.5% of millennials, and 20.8% of Gen Z. Which means if we follow this trajectory, we will all be gay in 2054. <laughs> and it's okay to ask questions about something that's very new and involves children. The answer can't always be that anyone from a marginalized community is automatically right, trump card, mic drop, end of discussion. Because we're literally experimenting on children. Maybe that's why Sweden and Finland have stopped giving puberty blockers to kids because we just don't know much about the long-term effects. Perhaps the most controversial part of what Marr had to say was when he suggested a, quote, trendy element to identifying as transgender. If we can't admit that in certain enclaves there is some level of trendiness to the idea of being anything other than straight, then this is not a serious science-based discussion. It's a blow being struck in the culture wars using children as cannon fodder. I don't understand parents who won't let their nine-year-old walk to the corner without a helmet, an EpiPen, and a GPS tracker. <laughs> and God forbid their lips touch dairy, but... <laughs> but hormone blockers and genital surgery, fine. Marr later tweeted, quote, if this spike in trans children is all biological, why is it regional? Either Ohio is shaming them or California is creating them. To which former Ohio State Senator Nina Turner hit back, quote, trans children in Ohio are constantly under attack from our state and local government. Trans people are everywhere. Governments are regional. 
And that's a fair point. And in fact, the thing he tweeted is was probably, uh, I thought, the least well thought out part of the Correct. entire of the entire monologue. Because yes, people will come out are more likely to do so in in areas where the policies or the the people of the culture are more friendly. Why are so people that, buying more sunscreen in California than they yeah. are in Alaska? It's crazy. Absolutely. Fair <laughs> on that point. Fair, that was a fair rebuttal. And but most of the monologue I thought was quite good. Uh, the point we just did play about, yeah, parents won't let their kids make any choices at all because of safety on all sorts of front, that way too controlling, I think, in terms of like walking. Parents won't let their kids walk. The law sometimes doesn't let you let your kids play at the playground by themselves or walk to school by themselves. And yet we're deciding that uh, that very invasive medical procedures for young children Without like no questions asked should be performed, and it, you know, don't mistake me. I I think transgender people are real. I think a lot of people, do, uh, many children even, probably do uh, suffer from gender dysphoria, and I'm sure treatment is a good option. Maybe invasive treatment for some cases. Absolutely, they should talk to doctors about it, therapists. Uh, if if your child you think your child is in this scenario, yes. Yeah, so not at all saying this should be outlawed or shouldn't be done, but. It does seem that the activists on transgender issues, from my interactions with them on social media, from the thing, there's a there's an automatic affirmation of anyone who expresses any, even very young kids, any discomfort at all about their sex or their gender. And there's a kind of, well, this is the answer for you, and this is what you should do. That there's no way it fits in in even a majority of these cases. So I think the first pushback that people would give is that the idea that parents are very concerned about the risks and health risks that their children are facing, the joke about dairy, which I think is a rather inopportune joke, you know, a week after recovering that babies are drinking or, or have a formula deficit and who drink <laughs> uh, dairy milk are, you know, throwing up blood and all these sorts of things, but never mind. The point is that there are actual health consequences that result from not engaging in certain kind of treatments as well. And the very parent who's very concerned about their kid consuming dairy or being unsafe in the world, it's consistent with that concern to not want them to be risking suicidal ideation and all the other things that often come with um, not responding to a kid with you know, dysmorphia who believes they were born in the wrong body in the right way. I also think that Bill Maher does this thing where he pretends as though you know, uh, hormone therapy or gender blockers or surgery. First of all, he compl he conflates all of these interventions, some of which are indicated at earlier ages than others, many of which the more, most, you know, involved of which don't come until later in life. Um, he conflates them all to drive a panic about how what is going on with a nine-year-old. A nine-year-old is what he brings up in this example, as though a nine-year-old is getting top surgery, as though a nine-year-old has a top. Um, so I, I think all of that is frustrating and also the erasure of the risks attendant to not giving kids the kind of treatments they need. I also think that he really downplays all of the psychological evaluations and the difficult hurdles that exist for kids to take advantage of those kinds of interventions. And finally, I think the, the reason why we can't have these conversations in a reasonable way, and I think there are reasonable concerns that parents have and that folks are raising, is because people like Bill Maher are the least equipped to have the conversation and are such alarmist, uses a chart about growing identification as LGBT to attack people coming out increasingly as trans as trendy. I mean, it's a chart of people identifying as LGBTQIA. That's a lot of people in there who are identifying as bi or fluid or asexual and things like that. And it is really frustrating that it seems like the T in that series of letters um, is constantly the kind of um, bully, the, the punching bag for folks like Mar, who seem to anticipate and understand that there's not as much of a cultural appetite for beating up on gay people anymore. Everybody knows a gay person. It seems oh, inopportune. Well, I don't think that's fair. I but think that now there's never any, I'm sorry, like it seems odd to me that there's never a trans person involved in any of these conversations. You know, just, just have someone, let's just talk it out. Let's just talk it out. But it's, it's always this kind of very one-sided, oftentimes disingenuous conversation that prevents people who might be open to legitimate critique they of having that conversation. 
I have yet to find the activists on this issue don't want to have conversations about it. In fact, they scream at me that that uh, the questions I have about it are examples of legitimating violence against them or something of that nature all the time. The the most unfriendly and hostile, shrieking illiberal voices in the entire progressive movement are people obsessed with this issue. Well, I do, I do think that there has been. I have had difficulty, you know, sourcing people to come on the show and have a conversation about it because there is a presumption that anyone engaged in the conversation um, is seeking any kind of nuanced addressing of the issues is acting in bad faith. I think that's true. I also don't think interlocutors like Bill Maher are helping in that regard when the conversations are being driven in contexts like this or contexts like you know, comedy shows, Dave Chappelle shows and stuff like that, where there is some question, I think, from people who legitimately feel under attack and legitimately feel like there's a lot of difficulty and hurdle to actually coming out as trans transgender and getting the kind of medical care that they like. Um, you know, that being erased from the conversation makes them, I think, more hostile and less likely to want to engage in a we're, public sphere. We're focusing on this and we're, this is a legitimate public policy question because it involves kids and it involves medical procedures that are, so, so the pu puberty blockers are right to delay puberty so that you get the surgeries later. But we don't know, there, there is some, there's reporting on the, you know, the, the puberty blockers are not entirely necessarily consequence free. And mm -hmm. you know, my friend Jesse Single has done a lot of reporting on this, a lot of reporting that really, really, really ticked off uh, the transgender activist community. Uh, uh, Katie Herzog has done a lot of reporting on people who did transition, who, who had uh, had this, you know, pr procedure recommended to them based on their supposed discomfort in their own bodies, only to later want to go back, and it was not right for them. And you're not yeah. you're not supposed to even talk about those cases, well, I, which are numerous. I certainly think that you should be allowed to talk about those cases, but it's also the case. And Jesse Single, I think, was rightly very careful to make this point in his much maligned Atlantic article from a few years back that those cases are very very rare and degenerative detransitioners are in the very small minority of people who ever transition. And again, this is the risk. The risk is that by talking about detransitioners who deserve to be heard and that deserves to be a part of the public record, you are skewing people's perception of what the risks are against the risks of not allowing That's true transition. of people who go through with the transition, but there are a large number of people of, of kids uh, diagnosed with gender dysphoria but then never actually end up going through with the transition, and then later do no longer identify as having gender dysphoria. So well, all so of those have gone. Harm, what's the harm in saying, okay, it seems like you're presenting with gender dysphoria. It right. sounds like the medical recommendation there is just to wait off, hold off, or have a psychological intervention, you know, right. therapy and intervention. No, right. That was the that correct like, course of action. Right. But, but. If we had been in a mindset of, oh, no, gender dysphoria, okay, let's start, let's let's get everything going, that, that would have been wrong. I think there's a misrepresentation of how many people are in that mindset. I'm not saying that there's never a doctor in the whole history of the world that is overzealous. That happens in many cases and in many kinds of medical interventions. But it strikes me as curious, you said it a little while ago, that this is a public health concern because it involves children. That doesn't strike me as especially a libertarian mindset. We're talking about kids and parts of the, parents in parts of the country that want to teach their kids a certain kind of history that don't want to talk about what I think are basic facts about American history and the reality of slavery and Jim Crow and all of these kinds of things. Fine, if they want to, if they want to you know, teach their kids what they want to teach, in that context, everyone's like, the home is sacred. I want my kid to know what they, I want to know. Suddenly, when we're talking about very intimate decisions being made between children, their doctors, and their family members, it's a national point of national conversation. And I'm not entirely sure why that is. Okay, it, it should absolutely be a decision between the, the, the child, the family, consultation with the doctor. Yeah, absolutely. I'm, I'm not disagreeing with that at all. I mean, we're, we're we're talking about it because we're interested in, in, the, in the broader social phenomenon, uh, if there's a contagion aspect to it. I'm not, I'm not saying it should a be banned or prohibited. aspect to it. So let's, let's talk about that. social contagion. Yeah. So I do think, I mean, th this, is, this is the point about California versus Ohio. Of course it's going to be the case when people feel like it's more socially acceptable to take a certain course of action, that they're going to take the certain course of action. I think there's the same number of gay people born in Ohio as California, the same number of trans people proportionately, but of course, in a more welcoming environment, you're going to be 
feel more able to come out. Now, is there some risk that people, especially kids who are going through puberty, which is not a fun time, and who are oftentimes feeling very ambivalent about their gender, as a, as a girl, you're growing parts and men are looking at you in ways that make you feel very uncomfortable. Is that perhaps going to make you think, I could not, you know, I could identify as male right. in, in a world where that's an option to you, even though 40 years ago, you might not have thought that. And even though 10 years from now, you might not see yourself that way. It was just circumstantial, quite possibly. But that is why I think it's important to have psychological evaluation yeah. and, and measure doctors who I want to see Bill Maher talking about the evidence that that's not the case. Tell me some specific examples of doctors that have been overzealous. And let's talk about, you know, what should be done about those human beings, not attacking the broader social phenomenon. Which but to do those evaluations, good. you have to have a, you have to push back a little bit. You have to make sure that, right, that the child is not just feeling just uncomfortable in their own body the way all kids, all teenagers do mm -hmm. at some point. And I, I really reject this, you know, quasi-ideological notion that it, right, that if you're uncomfortable in your own skin or you're not right, not happy with the way you look, it must be because you're, the, you're, you're born but in the who, wrong, like that's I, not. I, I would argue that there, that is not the case. I, I certainly don't think that any, every teenager who's uncomfortable in their own skin, the psychologists who are tasked with doing these intensive evaluations of folks to decide whether or not, you know, I think there is this perception, and some of it is, I think, the broader culture's fault. I think there's a flippant way that people can talk about these issues. There's a flippant way that it can happen in like the pop culture space mm -hmm. that I think is really attenuated from what's happening in these clinical environments when all parents, no matter how woke you are, I think are hesitant about doing any kind of intervention with their kid that could have permanent consequences when the kid is so young and their decision-making faculties are so underdeveloped. I don't know a parent in the world, no matter how woke, <laughs> no matter how progressive, no matter how liberal they are, that doesn't wouldn't pause and doesn't pause and take this kind of decision very seriously. And that's what's so frustrating. I, I think there's a broad agreement on these issues. I think parents are all broadly concerned that they want to do the right thing. And us having this conversation, I don't think is especially informed, is nowhere near as informed as the in, intensive psychological process that folks have to go through with doctors, with therapists, I, well, to get yes. to the point where they would actually well, and have that's good, but I, Okay, but I see, it in, I see it in the training materials, in sort of activist... The, the, the way gender kind of and like the, 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 the ones that uh, activists, educators share at conferences about here's how you talk about these issues, like, conflating like sex and, and they're conflating the, the gender, the gingerbread gender thing. Have you seen that? No, we, we're going to different conferences. <laughs> <laughs> it's, a, it's the gingerbread gender bread thing. Uh, I, I, you know I'm not making this up. I, I just, that's too specific I, I, for me to I, make that I up on the spot. I believe you, but nothing's translating uh, me hungry. Th and also, that <laughs> <laughs> there's a conflation now with sex and gender that the right used to really make. That now I feel like this is an, an act activist progressives making. That like you can be. That there's I don't I don't accept. I don't believe there's anything like innately biological about. Uh, you, like you can't tell me that like a little boy likes to play with. Dolls that necessarily means no, they're I a girl. They might, they just might be a feminine boy. They might be gay. They might be, or they might just like dolls. It doesn't mean they're. Yes. A, they, we should so, recommend puberty blockers to this person. And in the the training materials, they bring that up always. But that's not. That's gender. That's a different thing. So this this is an argument that's made by some folks. Some folks who are characterized as traditional feminists. Some folks that are characterized as turfs. Yes. Um, who say it used to be the case that if you you know, had not, you know, interests or proclivities that were different from what is stereotypical to your sex, right. then you should have the freedom to be whoever you want to be, not change your sex to right. align not with... Not be asserted so, into a different right. category. And we're trying to erode a, these categories kind of entirely because we're all individuals. Yeah, there's a, there's a kind right. of essentialism that can come out. And that's sort of my, where as a libertarian, I get, I, I get animated because everyone is an individual, not part of some broad collective or categorization. And people are, it is, people should feel encouraged and free to associate with whatever, whatever traits they like. And you, it doesn't mean you have to slot yourself right. in some entirely other thing. But this is, this is why I think it's, it's so important to get like psychologists in this conversation. And to Jesse Singles' credit, he did talk to a lot of people who were very authoritative on the subject when he wrote his articles, including people who said, yes, I've experienced people who detransitioned, but I still ultimately feel like this is the best course of action for most people uh, because there is a big difference. And people who are clinically able to assess are overwhelmingly successful in assessing the difference between a tomboy 
or a girl who right. ultimately decide, you know realizes she's lesbian and a person who was you know assigned gender female at birth who ultimately realizes that, that they're male and right. you know you and I might be confounded and the gingerbread people might be confounded by these kind of distinctions, but I would caution folks to against thinking that the level of confusion and mistakes that are happening are as high as people like Bill Maher represent them with their exponential graphs and such on their show. I think they're very high in the way these things are talked about by progressive activists and educators and the people like you see on TikTok. Maybe it's not the case with the actual doctors and medical establishment. That I would grant. Yeah, well, let's get some doctors in the room. Let's get some gingerbread <laughs> cookies in here first. <laughs> well, I'm starving. Next up, uh, we will be talking about the fact that former Vice President Mike Pence is allegedly eyeing a bid for president in 2024. We'll discuss that next with our panel. Please do stick around. There's been no shortage of speculation about Donald Trump staging a comeback and running for re-election in 2024. But this time, it is former Vice President Mike Pence who might be mulling a run for president. According to the New York Times, Pence has kept an arm's length distance from Trump since leaving the White House campaigning with midterm candidates Trump has written off and visiting early nominating states. Here to discuss are Jen Perlman, co-host of Generational Change on YouTube, and Rachel Bovard, policy director at the Conservative Partnership Institute. Welcome to you both. Good morning. Thank you. So, Rachel, you know, what do you think? Is there any possibility, I'm not sure there is, that, you know, Mike Pence could throw his hat into the ring and possibly, you know, come out of a Republican primary process, Trump or no Trump? Isn't he just too damaged by, you know, the perception that he betrayed Trump at the end or, or, or didn't do what he was supposed to do? I definitely think there's a segment of, of the Trump base that looks at him that way. But I think more broadly, and what's more interesting to me is, you know, you're seeing Mike Pence actually try to resurrect a pre-Trump model of Republican politics that I'm not sure, frankly, exists anymore. I don't know that there's a path for that type of uh, Republican politics anymore. And what I mean by that is, you know, sort of the traditional fusionist emphasis on a lot of issues that Trump sort of turned on their head, you know, an emphasis on free trade, an emphasis on letting big business kind of get away with whatever they want, um, you know, a sort of a global international order, you know, in the foreign policy space, all these things were sort of pre-Trump. I don't know that Pence has a viable path forward with an emphasis on these things. And he's certainly trying. I don't, I don't, you know, know that he's really broken with who he used to be. So that's what's more interesting to me is can he actually carve out a lane uh, in that regard, and my sense is no, not right now. Well, Jen, what do you make of the alliances that Trump and Pence are making respectively in Georgia, where you know Trump is frustrated with Purdue, you know with with Kemp for not overturning the election or however you want to characterize it, um, and Pence taking the more you know uh, upholding of democracy line of saying that there's certain rules we have to abide. You know, is there an appetite? Is Pence anticipating that there is some appetite among even conservatives in Georgia for respecting basic election law and not participating in the big lie? What do you think the effect of the big lie broadly is going to be on this potential showdown? It's interesting. I, I really see Georgia as sort of like this proxy war that's going on. Um, and I think it'll say a lot regarding what happens there. But I, I agree that there's really not that much of a lane for Mike Pence because he's very niche to begin with. Like I see him as very, very niche. And I don't see that as speaking to a broad enough group of people. But it almost seems to me that he's just going out of his way to be contrary. You know, whether or not um, that works, I don't know, but he's definitely going out of his way just to say, well, I'm going to do what opposite of what Trump did, but I don't know that that'll be enough to really um, make him stand out as something that's different than Trump, given that he stood by him as his lapdog for four years. Hmm. Rachel, who do you think are the non-Trump Republicans who are plausible candidates in 2024 who are uh, you know, speaking to the the new kind of policy consensus that animates uh, conservatives, the, the the departure from the the Pence's of the world, is it really just DeSantis, or or are there others? 
I think at this point, it it almost from, you know, an actionable standpoint, it really only is DeSantis, which is interesting, because I don't think he necessarily has taken the steps that others have taken to sort of, you know, push out into the presidential primary, he seems to be holding back. But I think, you know, to the point that Jen just made, I think she's right, you have a bunch of Republicans, Mike Pence included, who are defining themselves as not Trump. And that works for a little bit, right? But eventually, you have to say what you are. And I think in many cases, you know, the 2020 election, Biden tried that out, right? Biden, I think, tried to appeal to a lot of Republican voters by saying, well, I'm not Trump. I'm, I'm, you know, you want your politics to go back to boring, pick me. And, you know, I don't think that that's working out for him necessarily very well either. So I don't know that anyone's actually carved out a sustainable lane to take on Trump. Um, you know, you look at people like uh, Nikki Haley, for instance, who I don't think has, you know, come out exactly in polar opposite of Trump, but has, you know, carved a lane for herself that I think is distinct enough. Uh, and people are going to want to see, okay, what is it that you're for? And nobody's really put that platform out. No one is really willing, I think, to take uh, a, a polar opposite stand of Trump because Trump is still really powerful. Uh, and he's, again, the most, you know, popular Republican in the party. And doing that at this stage, I think, has a lot of consequences that people, you know, aren't yet willing to deal with. So we don't have anyone, I think, that is a foil yet or a viable foil anyway to Trump. Well, Rachel, the counter argument to your point would be, you know, that Biden's approval ratings might not be so hot right now, but he did get elected and there was some appetite for a certain uh, gray haired vice president, a silver <laughs> fox, if you will, who promised to return to normal. You know, is it completely un you know, unreasonable that Pence could be anticipating that there is an appetite for that, including among people who are, in fact, frustrated with Biden and his failure to pass much of anything at all over the last year or so, um, and who might have only gone over to the Democratic side because he presented himself as a moderate alternative to Trump. Is Pence a more moderate, genuinely conservative alternative to Trump? I do think there is definitely a, a segment of the Republican Party that, you know, just doesn't want the drama of Trump. That is a definite you know, problem that Trump has, I think, from a nationwide appeal or at least a base appeal to Republican voters. What I don't know is how big that segment is and if that segment is going to look at Mike Pence and be like, yes, this guy. Because, again, take you know, the baggage away from Trump. What was popular about him to the base is that he was, you know, from their perspective, fearless in the face of a lot of the culture wars, a lot of the excesses of business, a lot of the things that Republicans really wanted to see. And I don't know that Pence is really putting himself forward as the natural heir to those fights. And I think unless he's willing to do that, I actually just I don't know how big the appeal is of, well, I'm not that guy and I'm boring. So you don't have to watch the news every night. You know, I don't know how big that appeal actually is. Jen, do you think Democrats recognize, you know, the, the danger they're in, that they're looking to get really, really hurt uh, in, in this upcoming election? You know, they last time they they had, you know, Biden running as a, like, yes, a moderate, a, a boring non-Trump alternative. Now, well, A, you might not have Trump in the race. You could decide not to run. You could have him and, and he like the poll numbers for Biden are so low. He could he's going to be he's going to have a fighting chance. He's not gone. He's not gotten rid of. He could absolutely uh, come back. Do, do Democrats appreciate that? You know, they're not they're not even going to have a lot of the arguments they had last time to narrowly beat uh, Trump. Uh, I find the Democrats largely delusional. Um, I, I don't know what they're seeing. I can say, like, what's interesting is I'm in Florida. So when you're talking about DeSantis, like, you know, the Democrats here, they're actually thinking that there's a viable gubernatorial race for them this year. And DeSantis, as far as I can see, he's already won that and he's running in 24 for president. Absolutely. So, Absolutely. And so it's our Democrats do not seem to be very aware. But then I also think that's partially intentional. Um, they don't have anybody that they can put up against either Trump or DeSantis or any of those people, actually, that has a chance. And Biden, while he won, he barely won during a pandemic. And so I, I don't think that that was that strong of a message that people sent. Oh, yes, we really want this. That was never really clear. Um, I think it was more that Trump lost than Biden won. And so I think we're going to see that coming back to bite them. And no, they are very seemingly blind about what's going on all around them. Yeah, he barely won then. And now he's had years of uh, you know, fair, fair or not, no matter what you think, clearly people think it's gone badly with the economy, with 
Ukraine, Afghanistan, you know, that things okay. are have not gone with COVID even. Things have not gone well. So he's, so he's going to be underwater trying to make the same case. And he only narrowly won last time. It just seems very, very concerning, a reason for concern if you're a Democrat. But uh, not a lot of, I don't hear that a lot. Uh, Rachel, Jen, thank you so much for joining us. Thanks, guys. We'll have more rising right after this. Sexual transmission from two recent raves in Europe may explain the recent monkeypox outbreaks, according to World Health Organization expert David Heyman. Heyman, who called the outbreaks a random event, said the raves held in Spain and Belgium are the leading theory to explain the disease's recent spread, according to Hill reporting. There is one confirmed case of monkeypox in the United States and four suspected cases in the country, the CDC said yesterday. U.S. health officials are in the process of releasing some Genios vaccine doses for use in monkeypox cases for high-risk people. Dr. Jennifer McQuiston, deputy director of the Division of High-Consequence Pathogens and Pathology within the CDC's National Center for Emerging and Zoonotic Infectious Diseases, confirmed that there has been a request of the release of the Genios vaccine from the national stockpile. McQuiston said the U.S. has a good stock of that vaccine because it has been preparing for the possibility of needing to use the doses for smallpox, according to CNN. Senior scholar at the Johns Hopkins Center for Health Security, Dr. Amish Adalja, joins us to discuss. Welcome, Dr. Adalja. Thanks for having me. Okay, so it's, what should people know? This is obviously a very scary sounding thing, uh, given that we're all reeling from the consequences and a lot of the misinformation and confusing information that we're getting about COVID. Help to clarify for the audience who wants to know how concerned they should be in this moment. There's a natural tendency for the general public and the press to view every infectious disease emergency post-COVID through the lens of COVID. But you sort of miss a lot of the differences between the viruses, the distinct biological entities. Monkeypox is a virus that's been around, at least noticed since the 1950s, has been infecting people since the 1970s, primarily endemic in certain countries in Africa. And we've seen sporadic cases occur with importation. And what's happening with this outbreak is that this, this illness, which causes fever and rash, is spreading within social networks in a way that it hasn't before. But it's something that we know how to contain the key thing was just understanding the epidemiology of how people were getting infected. And I think we're getting closer every day to really getting a handle on how people got, got infected. And we can then deploy the Genios vaccine or other smallpox vaccines to halt transmission, just like we've done with prior monkeypox outbreaks that have occurred, including in the United States in 2003. Do we know that it is primarily sexually transmitted or is it it's, you know, transmitted via close sustained contact? including during, you know, sexual uh, behavior? We don't know that now, but we do know that skin-to-skin contact, close, intimate contact, even if there's not, per se, sexual transmission through body fluids, is enough for this virus to to move from person to person. So for control measures, it's not necessarily going to be any different if it's being transmitted sexually or being transmitted through sexual contact because we still do the same thing. It's an important scientific question to understand, is the virus in the body fluids uh, that are exchanged during sex? And I suspect it probably is, but a lot of this might just be skin-to-skin, close contact, based on what we're hearing about lesions being concentrated in the genital regions, for example. And about uh, regarding the vaccine, my understanding from reading about it is that so they can give the vaccine to people who, who maybe are close contacts of people who've been infected so that they... To, to try to stop them from getting it, and that also you can give the vaccine uh, as sort of a therapeutic to someone who has been uh, uh, affected and, and it will help them. Is that is that accurate? Sort of. We, we use the vaccine as what's called post-exposure prophylaxis. So we have a case, and then we identify the contacts, and you can vaccinate those individuals during the 12 or so day incubation period, and that may completely abort the infection or it may make it less severe. We don't really give it therapeutically once they've already developed illness, but if you can get them in that 12-day incubation period before symptoms have started, you can significantly impact their illness and possibly completely stop their illness from happening. That's exactly what we did uh, for the smallpox eradication campaign. That's what we've done in other monkeypox outbreaks, and that's the, the kind of concept of operations for this current monkeypox outbreak. Are, are you surprised by the 
kind of appetite for the story and the public? Is this commensurate with other similar types of outbreaks that we've seen? Or do you really think that this uh, kind of focus on monkeypox is driven by some combination of uh, hyper awareness of viral pathogens because of COVID and also perhaps the monkey in the name, which seems to be particularly, you know, scary and, and, and outlandish seeming to people. I definitely think that the general public, as well as the press, are, are now attuned to the risk of infectious disease and see this as an important story. But again, they have to start to think about these as different biological events, not one continuous pandemic from COVID-19 to whatever comes next. And, and I do think when you have a zoonotic infection, meaning it comes from animals, has monkey in the word, sounds like the word smallpox, all of that does uh, have a little bit of an allure to it. Uh, what we hope is that, you know, that the press starts to cover infectious diseases in a way that's not sensationalistic, that's not alarmist, but actually reflects the, the threat that infectious disease, diseases pose to us and helps the, the public become informed and interested in this topic, especially our, our policymakers, because preparedness is going to be very important moving forward after the COVID-19 pandemic. So given what we know so far about how it spreads, you know, would you... I, I, know, I know some people already who are like, well, we got to keep just, you know, wearing masks outside, you know, just in case, because it can theoretically spread through respiratory droplets. But we are, I don't think, and based on what you're saying, we're not at the point of, of which, like, all people need to worry that they're about to contract monkeypox unless they're taking very uh, serious precautions on the level of the precautions they took against COVID-19, which is, you know, very, very, very broadly contagious. Monkeypox is much less contagious than COVID-19. Though it can be spread by respiratory droplets, it's usually close contact. The other thing about monkeypox is it's not contagious during the incubation period. So very different transmission characteristics from COVID-19. And the general public is not at risk from this monkeypox outbreak. It seems to be clustering within uh, sexual networks of men who have sex with other men. And it's not something that's a general threat to the public, although anybody can get infected if they're exposed in the, in the appropriate manner. So, so I think this is something that will eventually be controlled now that we've got an understanding on the epidemiology. It'll take some time to get vaccine into the contacts, but I don't think that this deserves this any kind of alarm. And you have to keep, also keep in mind that not every pathogen has pandemic potential. Monkeypox is not something that can cause a pandemic. It simply doesn't have the biological characteristics to be able to do so. And we have a tried and true mechanism to stop it, which is the, the vaccines. Well, we want to, while we have you here, we want to just uh, talk a little bit about COVID-19. Scientific advisor at the Broad Institute of MIT and Harvard, Alina Chan, tweeted yesterday that she heard new phrase permasurge used to describe the spread of Omicron and its subvariants in 2022. Uh, can you update us on uh, the status of any uh, new vaccines that are you know, catering specifically to the subvariants uh, of COVID? We know that both Pfizer and uh, Moderna are trying to update their vaccine. There, are, there is talk about putting an Omicron variant in, in the vaccine that might be available in the fall, so it has the original strain and Omicron. There definitely is a need to update these vaccines because they're not able to block transmission the way that they could during the earlier eras when Delta was uh, prominent or Alpha or the original version. There's also work to make a universal corona vaccine that would combat all coronaviruses and not have to be updated. So there is going to be a lot of innovation coming forward in this space because these first generation vaccines are not the last that we're going to see. Those, were, those are very, very effective at, at what they do, which is preventing serious illness, hospitalization and death. But there's always room for improvement and technology is going to progress. And doctor, what do you say, what is your response to folks who have been talking about some studies that seem to indicate that or there might be some concerns about waning efficacy of vaccines and boosters the more and more people take them um, over time, that there could be a diminishing returns or even um, increased vulnerability to the virus over time, depending on how many vaccines and boosters you ultimately take. Are those uh, concerns with any legitimacy or that you've been following at all? There, there's a theoretical concern that you can sort of prime your immune system to only respond to the vaccine strain, and it has difficulty being able to respond to other strains. And that's something that people have seen with influenza. And it's clear right now we're already getting diminishing returns. I don't think there's any danger to the boosting. I think it's just not a proper policy. I think we need to update the vaccine to get the appropriate protection. And we will see diminishing returns if we continue to use 
boosters against the ancestral strain and the immune system keeps getting hit with the ancestral strain when what's circulating is something completely different, there's going to be less and less protection as the virus becomes more immune evasive the way Omicron has. Hmm. Well, thank you so much, Dr. Dalja. Thanks for having me. And we will have more rising after this. House Speaker Nancy Pelosi was banned from receiving communion at any San Francisco church after the Archbishop of the Catholic Church in San Francisco condemned Pelosi for her pro-choice stance. The Archbishop said Pelosi must first confess and receive absolution to what he called a grave sin. The Archbishop found himself at odds with the Pope, who said previously that President Biden and others should not be excommunicated just because of their political views on abortion. Whoopi Goldberg came to Pelosi's defense while on The View. Let's watch. This is not your job, dude. <laughs> that is not, you can't, that is not up to you to make that decision. You know, what is the saying? It's kind of amazing. Uh, but, you know, what is the point of communion, right? It's for uh, sinners. It's the, for, the, for sinners. It's the reward of saints, but the bread of sinners. How dare you? How dare you? Well, Robbie, I'm not a religious person. You're a Catholic. Does that track for you? Uh, I'm, I mean, I'm a, a lapsed Catholic. I was <laughs> went to Catholic uh, Catholic education, uh, was raised Catholic, but I don't like it is the archbishop's job to decide who gets to have communion. So that's like a very weird remark from Whoopi Goldberg. Mm. I, I, look, I mean, it, it's a it's a religion. It's a faith. If you violate the tenets of it, you're not allowed to participate in the rituals of it. I, so I don't. That, that was, and then and then Whoopi's saying that the archbishop doesn't have doctrinal authority here. But then she starts going into what she well, like what the Eucharist means to her. Yeah, that was off the very, back yeah. of so the Archbishop card. Whoopi, I guess, is is <laughs> is the person who decides this thing. Look, I I mean, it's and different uh, Catholic jurisdictions deal with this question differently. I think. Um, I mean, there are many Catholics who uh, who are pro-choice, even. Uh, well, what about the Pope? What about this argument that the Pope said that Biden shouldn't be excommunicated? So, is there an inconsistency there? Does everyone, do all the archbishops not have to follow the Pope's lead? And if they're going to sanction Nancy Pelosi in that way, do they have to go ahead and excommunicate her to deny her the communion? I think you only have to. Again, I I am not claiming to be like hardcore Catholic by any stretch of the imagination. I think if my uh, my if my uh, in-laws who are very uh, steeped in the knowledgeable in the faith uh, see this they'll be cringing at how badly <laughs> I butcher what the doctrine is but I, I think that the Pope has to if the Pope declares like no this is this is the way it is then absolutely but if he's just kind of making remarks about how he thinks the policy should be, then it's still like a policy that's discussed and debated, et cetera. You know, when he when he proclaims, no, this is the way it is, then yes, there can be no disagreement. Yeah, I think I, that's I, how it works. I frankly think this is kind of refreshing because I think there has been a blurring of the fact that the main driver of opposition to the right to choose has been religious in nature. And that's completely fine. If your religious beliefs tell you not to do X, Y, and Z, I fully support your ability to practice and follow the doctrine of your faith. However, we also live in the United States of America, where one of our most important founding principles is the separation of church and state. And I think some clarity about people's um, you know, mm -hmm. opposition to ab abortion being based in religion would um, you know, prevent there from being so much cover over the fact that people are trying to impose their religious beliefs on the rest of the population instead of making personal decisions independently in their home the way I would argue they should be doing. Yeah, yeah. I, this is just how it looks. <laughs> that is her if, her, if her, if Pelosi's view is that, right, abortion should be legal, fine, but the church's view conflicts with that, and then they say you can't receive... Eucharist, I, that's just how it is. I, it's, it's, and it does feel, I mean... So I don't know why Whoopi has to bemoan this reality. I don't know. Well, because they all participate in a kind of politics, which is just my guy good, other guy bad, and they were going to reflexively defend Nancy Pelosi no matter what happened. I think the more interesting cases are in some, some ways when these Catholics are actually in line with doctrine opposed to abortion, but also on team good guy, team Democrat. You know, where what, what was the discourse around Tim Kaine 
you know, who? <laughs> I don't know. Who Hillary, that is. Hillary Clinton's vice presidential pick in 2016. Really? Huh? I think who, you'd think I'd remember that. <laughs> He's a little bit of a forgettable Tim guy. Kane. Really, really boosted the ticket there. Okay. <laughs> really, if really you say so. Brought out the voters for Hillary. I was Clinton. at the convention. I just don't remember. <laughs> <laughs> but look, the most memorable thing about the guy was that he was wildly out of step with the party on abortion. He had um, championed a number of restrictive abortion bills in Virginia. He personally, you know, he was uh, opposed, um, you know, to spending federal money on abortion services. I mean, he was all over the place. And we were in the middle of a hot, a hot primary where Hillary Clinton was claiming that because she was a woman, she was better on women's issues than someone like Bernie Sanders, who had, in fact, been so much better on women's issues and who would never have picked a, you know, pro-life candidate who was one heartbeat away from the presidency to be the VP. And I think there was something like really refreshing, frankly, about these contrasts being highlighted instead of um, this cover that is extended to the organizations which are fundamentally you know, conservative nature, it's perfectly fine if you want to be conservative. But when you have these kind of woke popes that are down with all sorts of things, I think it, it, dis it disguises the extent to which the fundamental opposition to a lot of progressive politics does come from these more conservative just said something interesting. Do you think it's radically conservative to oppose federal funding of abortion services? I don't know that it is. Well, I, I don't. I mean, I, I think if people are opposed to abortion, not wanting their tax dollars to publicly subsidize those services seems pretty reasonable and to if me. I'm, uh, now, I, I don't want to force no, no, other no. people to subsidize things that are against their values. Well, I, I, sure. So let's let's go down the list. I'm morally opposed to funding war. Yeah, it would be great if we didn't fund that. I agree. And I and I morally opposed to fighting in a war, and also think it's an infringement on my liberty to say that I have to go and sit in a jail cell like Muhammad Ali if I oppose a mandatory conscription. Should that happen again? Absolutely, I do too. And I also don't think I should have to pay taxes because that's against my. I mean, like, look. Yeah, the, well, you're, 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 you're thinking you're going to get me at some point in this. No, list. I know you're not where you're coming from, Robbie. But a lot of people would draw the line in a lot of different places, and so sure, but this is ostensibly a with highly whole, a, a socially contested something with very strong, strong feelings, a very unsettled. Uh, policy question that different states want to adjudicate in different ways, and you're saying that we should federally subsidize it? No, the, the right to choice is about making sure that people can make decisions personally in their own states. I, I, I don't know I, that I have to pay for I really, it. Well, I, I'll come to that in a second, but I really want to make sure that this point is made. People say, let's defer to the states so people can have choice. No, if you defer to the states, people within those states who disagree with the state's decision aren't going to have choice. What Roe v. Wade does is protect the constitutional right for everyone individually to make those choices because there are states who want to constrain those choices and make people adhere to their own religious view of where life starts and all of those kinds of things. With respect to whether the government should pay for it, I have a hard time distinguishing between that kind of a basic health care intervention that has a lot of public policy um, uh, support behind it. Uh, you know, the, all of the studies about how people go and seek out abortions and end up in emergency rooms or dead as a consequence of having unsanctioned abortions. I think there's a legitimate public interest in making sure that people at least have the safe, legal and rare version of abortion instead of these, you know, back alley situations that ultimately the taxpayer is going to have to pay for when you're wheeled on a gurney into an emergency room. Yeah, but for millions of American, for millions of Americans, abortion is like something akin to baby murder. And it seems extra to make them pay for it to subsidize and it. And for millions of like Americans, war feels like something akin to murder, murder. And sometimes there's babies involved. Well, I, and I would, I would love to not, I would love to not subsidize. I, I think maybe it would constrain our government and the bad things it does if more people could, uh, could be conscientious objectors from having to fund government programs and policies that they object to. Look, I, I would be open to that conversation, but the reality is the only um, time that people seem to be able to divest from government spending mm -hmm. are when it is spending on protecting, frankly, minority rights or rights of people who have been historically marginalized, never for the big, bad, imperialist, truly terrible things that America do does on a much bigger scale. So I, I'm open, I'm open yeah. to talk about like, putting divest. the candle's nose under the, the tent, but I know that that only goes one way, and it's never in the way that protects those who I, I would argue are most vulnerable. All right. Well, tomorrow on Rising, military expert Lieutenant Colonel Daniel Davis, a favorite of ours, will question why American soldiers should die for Taiwan. This after President Biden said the U.S. would involve the military if China invaded the country. 
Be sure, as always, to like, share, and subscribe so you never miss any content. And for those of you who like to listen while on the go, we are now available anywhere you listen to podcasts. Thanks so much for joining us. Goodbye. See you soon.